0: episode 449 of the cyberlaw podcast where lawyers talking technology security privacy and government and the views we're going to express here today do not reflect those of our institutions our clients our friends, family, or pets. We've got a really good lineup and a lot of new blood in our panel this week. Shabon Gorman is here. She's a partner in the Brunswick Group, a former star cybersecurity reporter for the Wall Street Journal and other places. Kurt Sanger is new. He's former deputy general counsel of U.S. Cyber Command and current board member and advisor for Cowbell Cyber Insurance. Uh, Kurt, I have to ask, is that like because the firm's motto is, you need more cowbell?
1: You know, I haven't explored. I've got a good relationship with the leadership there, but I'm waiting for the right moment to ask. So I will make sure to update you.
0: <laughs> All right. Sounds good. And Sultan Meiji, who's a scholar at the Cyber Policy Initiative at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Jordan Schneider is on because we're going to talk tech. And AI and he just can't stay away. He's the China tech analyst at the Rhodium Group and the host of the excellent China Talk podcast and newsletter which I peruse, you know, loyally every week. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. I thought we ought to start out, because I think this is the most interesting story of the week, with GPT-4. And Sultan, you have followed AI for quite a while. GPT and now GPT-4 seem to be turning a corner, at least in the kind of mindshare they have. Are they really going to change the way we use AI?
2: I mean, the short answer is yes, even though I would argue it's not AI. They're large language models. It's natural language processing. The The interesting thing about this moment in technology is because of the last few decades of increases in computational capacity, plus our ability to hook different data sets together, mostly through the search infrastructure of Google and others, we now are at a point where use cases around these kinds of systems are becoming incredibly tangible and straightforward. and this very generic kind of human-like interface that's being provided makes it very easy for someone to sit down and kind of without the bounds of understanding programming or technology in the slightest begin to extract value from technology that's the new and interesting thing and we are seeing all sorts of fascinating uses of it I, i do hesitate though to call it ai
0: yeah. The one that got my attention was somebody did a basically a notebook sketch of a website he wanted mm-hmm. uh, and said to GPT-4, give me a website that does this and looks like this. And it did.
2: Yeah. And it's, and it's doing far more than that. I mean, obviously we've heard about it passing the bar. We've obviously seen, you know, some of these other things. There's, there's an entire new category called hustle GPT that has made the news over the last couple of days where young people are basically saying, okay, chat GPT, I want to have a business that looks like X design and build it for me. And every single one of them made a dollar within 24 hours. And that's kind of a fascinating and and terrifying thing. Now, we're not talking billionaires just yet, but certainly if you remove the need to be you know a technologist at all from creating value from technology it does change the nature of of how this operates you know at some point economists are going to start wondering if 2022 or 2023 was where we fully decoupled economic output from number of people in the workforce that's kind of where i see this going because it's just radically increased the uh, the ability for people to get stuff out of technology
0: yeah so, And we have no idea who's going to lose their job because of this, although the, the well, expectation is it's, it's people like us.
2: I'll tell you one. I mean, yeah, if you mean people like us as in lawyers, then no, I think it's the other way. I think we're going to need more lawyers. There, there Stuart, I've said something nice about lawyers for the podcast, <laughs> so there we go. No, actually, you know where I am seeing it first is the intern classes and associate classes at the big investment banks in New York that is uh, yeah. that is the first place place we are seeing like a significant decrease because now that we have less people in the office there's less need for coffee and now we don't need to have a bunch of 23 year olds writing memos that uh, that chat gpt can write with uh, with a two sentence prompt
0: i thought they, they they basically did the spreadsheets and those two you could probably get chat gpt well, to do i
2: mean is that, are we going to talk about the banking crisis now cuz <laughs>
0: And do you think that the banking crisis has something to do with the lack of proper spreadsheets? (laughs)
2: Oh, dear. I'm going to get in so much trouble by answering this. I I think by having a bunch of people uh, instead of technology as the primary vector by which we are analyzing the balance sheets of the American banking system, we have opened ourselves up to an, an unbelievable number of issues. You know, we're discovering that the data that would have demonstrated failures at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were available not just weeks or months, but years before the regulatory community really was able to do anything about it. My own experience when I was at one of the regulators, where I instituted some degree of automated data analytics around around certain parts of this, and then having that that entire program shut down a week after I left, I've been told not too long ago that probably would have found this too is a little a little frustrating. The the short version is we had all the data we needed if we had just let the technology do what it's good at instead of having you know guys with slide rulers you know talking yeah. to their friends. I think we might be in a better position today.
0: Wow, the argument is not only would it be would it save money to have fewer people doing this, we'd actually have a better system of finding problems.
2: Fundamentally better risk management, yes. And I I, I won't get in trouble because I've been saying that for a few years.
0: Okay. So let me ask Jordan, because this is a a China story. Baidu rushed out Ernie to show to people and they they were so worried about it that they didn't actually do it live, although they let some people work with it live afterwards. And that took some of the sting out of it. Jordan, do you think that this is going to be another AlphaGo moment in China where people say, oh my God, we're just way behind?
3: Well, I mean, we've had, we've had AlphaGo moments, we've had Sputnik moments. I think for years now, you know, technologists and, and government officials, at least in China, have really recognized the fact that, in fact... You know, AI is probably the technology that has the most potential to increase productivity over the near to medium term, like Sultan was talking about. And you know, there are a number of different sort of inputs to like AI competitiveness, and or like just how much governments and, and and enterprises will be able to you know you know hook up AI into the economic bloodstream to get that productivity growth that both the U.S. and China, as well as every other country in the world, are really hoping for. So you have you know a number of dimensions from the sort of like like having the the best algorithms and models to having the compute needed to to generate them. And then then probably the most, the sort of like sharpest question is whether or not there'll be enough inference to deploy these models across across an entire economy. And I think it's a real open question now if the sort of export controls that the US government has placed on China will end up being a real limiting factor, not just in the national security applications that the original export controls were ostensibly scoped to get at, but at these more commercial things like, you know, the Ernie bots, which aren't, you know, at at least, you know, aren't nearly as, as sort of obviously dual use as supercomputers that are going to train ballistic missile models, but are going to be increasingly important to, to, to governments and companies and, and countries around the world as they adapt to whatever new landscape we'll be facing in the coming years as AI diffuses throughout the economy.
0: So let me see if I understand the economics of this. You need a lot of compute To compare an enormous amount of data to extract inferences from the data. And both of those things are pretty capital intensive and are going to be problems for China if the U.S. chip restrictions hold. Data, they they probably got plenty of data. And then you you said inference. Now, inference, if if I understand how this works, once you run the machine, once you've gone through the data, you can pull that stuff down to an actually manageable set of inferences that you could run on maybe even one machine. I think Alpaca runs on a single machine, and it's basically, if I understand it, a set of inferences derived from big machine learning operations. Once you're down to that level, it can't be that hard for China to find a way to get access to those if they think they don't have the right ones. And it ought to be possible to invest enough to have some pretty good inference engines. I
2: would I would only argue, Stuart, that the capital intensive part is probably no longer accurate ah. because of how commoditized not just the hardware, but also the software and the algorithms are becoming. And so the lowering the barriers, and, and this is where some of the other guests I think can probably speak more to the weaponization of these technologies in the medium term, which I think we're all a little nervous about. But you know, China has the largest data repositories in the world, whether legally or illegally obtained, and the ability for them to extract value from it is going to be massive.
0: Yeah, so I, it wouldn't be hard to ask Ernie with the right data. Tell me, people with a U.S. security clearance who really need money fast.
2: Absolutely. And given the porousness of so many of the, the financial services infrastructures in the U.S., especially the banks, you know, I think it's that kind of availability is going to be easy. Or, hey, Ernie, every hour, give me the top three people most likely to have been recently put under pressure by, you know you know, compressions in their stock portfolio as an example yep. or something like that. I'm sure we will see commercial utilizations of that to do targeted lead analysis, you know, from the institutions themselves and some of the some of the data brokers that exist out of the out of the cloud infrastructure, you know. I'm positive that the reason Google is last to the game by launching Bard just today was specifically because they were trying to figure out how to tie it into their existing SEO and digital marketing infrastructure to make sure that they're still making all the money in the world
0: off of it. So am I right that you could you could take an engine and then apply it to a proprietary set of data like classified information?
2: Yeah, Microsoft actually has made, a, made it very clear if you kind of read the fine print in their relationship with OpenAI on, on some of the products they've been launching, especially the stuff around Office that came out last week, that they have OpenAI's data as a baseline and then there's their private data that's... A step removed from that, and then the inference being that you will be able to then add your own data that stays private and, and secured and, and walled off and all of that. How reasonable that is to assume is 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 questionable, given the state of the technology inside of OpenAI, as even even you know as far as versions six and seven, which I've seen some some analysis of and some visibility to. But the fact is is it's very difficult to build AIs where you have partitioned data without the result of that data analysis leaking across to the the overall functioning of the system itself. So you have to then, you know, figure out how to move the actual AI engines, not just the data. So that yeah. becomes a you know, kind of a technical challenge unto itself.
0: So how much do you think Jordan the That the AI is going to produce results that are contrary to CCP policy, how much of an impact is that going to have on Chinese companies' willingness to experiment with this sort of technology?
3: On the margin, yes. But I think that the more I think about this, the less I think it will end up having a real impact. I mean, look, like, you know, there are there are speech controls on on GPT-4, right? And there's some sort of tolerance that every corporation which could be working with these engines is going to have for a screenshot of something that's on their website saying something sexist or racist or homophobic or what have you and and you know maybe the the sort of like downside risk is, is going to be much more dramatic than like you know something going viral on Twitter for a day for a Chinese company and you know that's a that's a, that's something that's a cost-benefit analysis that the that the Chinese government as well as the the firms themselves will have to make but I think at the end of the day this technology is so powerful and so transformative that I think the, the companies themselves as well as the government has enough of an incentive to try to sort of work around this these sort of censorship restrictions that I don't think it, it's going to be the biggest barrier for Chinese competition. After all, you know, these Chinese firms have like incredible data sets on all the stuff that they've manually censored over the past few decades. So there's plenty of stuff to train on. You know, there's, there, there's been like, you know, millions of hours of human tagging of what is and isn't kosher on the Chinese internet that all these firms are going to be able to leverage as they build their models, which are, you know, CCP compliant.
0: Yeah, they have an already pre-selected set of politically correct opinions that have been expressed on uh, WeChat. For U.S. companies that have to build this stuff in, do they build it into the inference engine? Does it have to be added on top or is it going to end up Buried in the inferences in a way that you can't actually identify.
2: It's going to be all of the above, Stuart, because it's important to remember that these technologies are all kind of generically available. So, whether or not it's in the infrastructure, so that when you do a, you know, you type in a URL, it'll route you to the appropriate place based on your telecommunication provider's preferences, which we already, you know, see a degree of, all the way through to a very subtle nuance of, me saying, hey, you know, insert anthropomorphized name of AI assistant, you know, tell me about something and I will get the Coke versus Pepsi because, you know, some piece of the value chain in there and the, usually it's the closest to the consumer is what impacts that will point me at Coke, not Pepsi which is disappointing because I actually prefer Pepsi. There you go, data for the Chinese. It's important for them to know that one. And it's going to be all of them and it's gonna be all of them at once. And it's going to be absolutely fascinating over the next few years to watch the fights between them if happening at the technical layer. So I will be on my phone using app A and I will get a recommendation of A you know going down one path and I will be at my computer, I will be using a different app and I will get, get a different recommendation. So i'm sure we've all been in that situation where you're trying to think of somewhere to go for dinner and you're, you're looking at your phone and then you're squinting and you're like okay that place looked interesting you go you do the exact same thing again on a, on a on your computer and you get a different result or that restaurant doesn't show up right we're going to see that cognitive dissidence continue and it's going to become hopefully quite meme worthy over the next few years as these fights amongst AIs trying to get our dollars you know continue to extend
0: yeah and Quite credibly, Siri is going to say, I'm sorry, but you know, Alexa is lying to you again in in her (laughs) usual sociopathic way.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And at some point, you know, that's going to I mean, you can you can just imagine the commercials, you can just imagine the memes, you can just imagine, you know, you know, a a that that current very hip meme with Nicolas Cage and and Pablo Pascal, you know, with the music playing, you know, and, and it'll be, you know, one AI assistant is one and the other one is the other. But frankly, as we've seen with the streaming wars, and I would actually draw a comparison. Here, it's not that there is going to be one AI system to rule them all. We'll use them for different things, right? Yeah. You know, I might use one for my musical preferences. I might use one for cooking. I might use one for travel. And it's going to ha- come down to a- an evolution of digital brand identity and digital brand preference, you know, for all of us. And it's just going to be kind of annoying on the capitalist side. On the authoritarian side, it it systematizes and automates information control far more aggressively than what they can just throw people at. And that becomes, I think, a little more terrifying because if, let's say, you are in Africa and you are curious about something, it will be far easier for the Chinese owning the telecommunication lines or the handset that you're holding to limit your ability to see things that they don't want you to see. Yeah.
0: All right. So this is going to be a wild ride. Very exciting.
2: It's, it's like investing in crypto man it's gonna be up and down every day of the week for the for the next 20 years
0: but you know it, at least you know it ends in bankruptcy
2: <laughs> and and civilizational collapse as always
0: <laughs> all right I, I was gonna ask one last question for Shaban and I think this has to do with the lying problem it it seems to me that this is a threat to any actual journalists, or at least people who are journalism adjacent in a very real way, the the, the people who write reports, because it's perfectly well written and handles pretty sophisticated questions. It's just that it still hallucinates. And as long as that happens, people are going to be reluctant to deploy it. But do you see this as a, a, a threat to an already threatened profession?
4: I mean, I guess at some level it could be, but it would have to be applied quite differently. I mean, as just out of curiosity, I, you know, typed into chat, it was just Chat GPT at the time, you know, what are the implications of the Silicon Valley Bank collapse? And the answer I got back was there's no evidence that this bank will collapse. And it goes on to the implications oh, yes, if it were to they're collapse, still in right? Because <laughs> exactly. And so you know, I, I think that and, and this will sound mildly defensive of reporters, but I think that reporters actually dig up new information. And it, you're not just going to find it somewhere on, on Google or just on the internet in, in various corners. You know, reporters actually do real work and go and have conversations and, you know, unearth facts that didn't exist before. So I think that this sort of wrote, maybe like, you know, earnings reports, things that are based off of press releases. Obviously, you could have a more updated version of Chat GPT that wasn't stuck in last year. And it could do some of that, I suppose. But I think that we're a long way off from having proper journalism be completely replaced by ai
0: well maybe although i you know as sultan said <laughs> you can if you can ask ai for the 10 banks most likely to fail based on the data of the last five years. That's a way of finding facts that might otherwise not get found.
4: Yeah. And I think that actually as a reporting tool, it could be fantastic, right? Because you could have that sort of access to information that you might not have had otherwise. And you know, I think that the democratization of AI, which is kind of what you're seeing here, could actually be a boon for a whole host of different types of occupations, right? Just that you can unearth information in a way that you, couldn't otherwise. And it is more accessible to sort of common people or people who are just doing their day jobs. And it's not particularly tied up with technology. And so I think that in that way, it could be very helpful for reporters among, you know, any number of other people looking to do their jobs and enhance productivity, I suppose, in that way. But I don't know if the actual act of reporting is likely to be replaced in a meaningful way anytime soon.
2: I was just gonna say that the ability to use this as a tool to systematize the research side and the investigation side, like we're already seeing that to a degree, you know, and certainly one of the reasons there's been so much absolutely fantastic reporting on the current banking crisis is because of the automation and tools that are available there and the openness of the data and things like that. I have a number of friends who are reporters and not a single one of them is losing, losing sleep right. at night over written content coming from any of these systems that would sit above the fold on the front page of the journal or Bloomberg or something like that. I, I also, if, if you work for The Economist, I think you're safe because I haven't found sarcasm GPT yet because (laughs) that would be the one I would use. Yeah. That's why
0: they hire 25 year olds. And I think you're not allowed to work there after the age of 30, if I remember right, because that's what they've got as a comparative advantage. Okay. Let's, let's move on. There's a report that Ukraine has decided it's got to draft a law, regularizing, legalizing its IT hacker army. And Kurt, having worked for the, the Cyber Command, has a pretty good idea of why that might be happening. And my theory is it's the International Red Cross and maybe also NATO saying, hey, you know, if you have these, these irregular forces who are just out there attacking Russian sites, they're going to violate the laws of war. They're going to be at risk of being treated as combatants when they don't think they're combatants. You really need to regularize that. And my question is whether in regularizing it, Ukraine isn't going to just get rid of the offensive side of the hacker
1: army. Well, by legitimizing it, they're solving one problem. They're solving the command and control issue, and hopefully with it, the possibility that as have... They've been accused of targeting of Russian hospitals and other civilian targets. It, or of,
0: of revealing, revealing a vulnerability that the, the Ukraine regular forces would like to take advantage of just for the sake of defacing a website. And you know, that's that's also a waste of a good vulnerability.
1: And there's also the possibility that there may be more directly controlled operations in cyberspace by the Ukrainian government that will be interfered with by these hackers that are not under their command and control. So there's a bit at stake here, but I think the thing that's mostly at stake doesn't really change with legitimizing the hacker group or the the, uh, volunteer IT army that the Minister of Digital Transformation invited to support the cause at the beginning of the conflict, and that is they're still civilians. And if they are directly supporting hostilities or are perceived to be or can be plausibly accused of directly participating in hostilities, they're still going to be targetable by Russia, not only in cyberspace, but potentially for kinetic or violent operations.
0: So I hear you that that's theoretically possible. And, and, you know, the the hackers in the DPRK could be uh, prosecuted for violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, but it ain't likely to happen. I, I guess my question is, do you think Ukraine has sort of decided that the hacker army is not really worth the the raised eyebrows and awkward questions that they get when they go to NATO?
1: That's a possibility, and they want to maintain NATO's favor and all their Western supporters' favor. I do think that there is some other motive to do this, and that could be that, yes, I don't think from a pragmatic standpoint, certainly there are hackers in the United States and Western Europe that may be supporting the IT army or consider themselves part of it. But on the other hand, there may be those in Moldova and Poland and other NATO nations that border Ukraine that may be supporting, and Russia may target them and claim that they're being attacked, so to speak. You know, with Cybercom, if you say attack and it's not a real use of force attack, we owe right. at least 10 pushups or $5 in the, in the penalty <laughs> jar. But if they claim that they're being attacked by one of these nearby NATO countries in cyberspace and that those operations are directly supporting hostilities, that they may use it as an excuse to escalate.
0: So what does Ukraine have to do in order to protect people from being treated as an irregular combatant? They don't need to put them all in uniform. I assume. That, that, that's a, that would be a dumb solution. But do they need to have a formal command and control relationship to them so people say, yes, I will accept the discipline of the Ukraine
1: government? That would help. But nevertheless, if you're a civilian and you're conducting an activity that's a use of force, that's illegal under international law, and it also potentially subjects you to being targetable for lethal operations... So one way Ukraine could bound the activities is to say that their irregulars or now regularized cyber forces can only participate in defensive operations. There's still some risk that Russia might target those, of course, because they're not the most fair arbiters of international law, but it certainly makes a better case that they're only participating on the defense and participating in anything that might be considered an offensive cyberspace operation and especially something that's offensive that is either directly itself or supports a kinetic use of force.
0: So it does sound as though it's actually going to be a little bit messy if they want to keep them from for offense, that they might have some problems on defense, but they won't have problems from NATO on defense Mm -hmm. as Estonia does this and the US may end up doing something like this too, you know, finding a way to bring civilians in, at least on an emergency basis, to, to handle defense. So I suspect when this is all said and done, we're going to see that there's a gradual decommissioning of the, the army, because I, I think there's also questions about how effective it's been on its own.
1: Sure. And the thing to remember also is that this invitation was made at a time that I don't think anybody expected that the defense of Ukraine would go this well. And so right. any ounce of support that Ukraine could gather at that point was very attractive. Even if they were being successful right now, there are other successes they have that may mitigate against the need for a volunteer IT hacker army.
0: Right. It's a way of, of solidifying support. Everybody knows that if, if you say, I support something, that's one thing. If you say, I support something and give the cause $5, you're more committed, and this is a way of getting a lot of committed Western support for for Ukraine, and that worked too. Okay, so the Biden administration has not been slow to move out on its notion that we need more regulation, and we maybe need more liability for uh, cybersecurity in cyberspace. And the latest target, which you know, those of us of you who listened to our interview with Chris Ingles have already heard is cloud security. Shaban? a lot of stories, a lot of talk about the need for cloud security regulation. It was a little less clear to me that there is cloud security regulation in the future as opposed to cybersecurity regulation for the cloud, if that makes sense.
4: Yeah, I, I think that does make sense, and I'm reminded of actually back I don't know probably more than a decade ago when I was a journalist covering cybersecurity, and there was a lot of discussion around regulation of critical infrastructure and and others uh, around cybersecurity. And I think that that ultimately became you know voluntary standards and things like that. I, you know, I think that the administration is definitely working to make the case that if you have an attack on the cloud, it has implications across a wide range of infrastructure whether it's hospitals or railroads or or ports and and things like that. So the administration, I think, is you know working to make the case that particularly when it comes to the cloud, there is a lot of risk there just because so many dependencies now exist on the cloud. On uh, so not just cloud infrastructure, but you're talking about the the infrastructure supporting hospitals and railroads, the electric grid, you know, air traffic control, financial markets, anything you could imagine. And so it sounds like they feel like they've sort of identified what they want to you know avoid as being a single point to failure. The solution is not necessarily as clear. I mean, certainly they've been talking about, you know, holding software makers liable for insecure code. They've been talking about more mandates on critical infrastructure security companies, sort of broadly speaking. I think that would include cloud infrastructure, but we haven't seen a ton of detail around what that would actually look like. And if history is any guide, it's just going to be very hard to figure out what that should be because regulating in a technology space that is constantly evolving is just, it's a very challenging thing to do well. And, so it's very easy to do badly. And I think that, you know, hopefully the administration would like to avoid bad implementation of technology regulation. So I, you know, it's it's a real open question what that's ultimately going to look like.
0: I thought it was pretty clear. They keep talking about the importance of regulating for cybersecurity, but what they really want to do is I think two things. One one, they want the crowd providers to stop charging for things they consider basic cybersecurity services like logging and, and the like. Yes. Because they've already been burned by people who didn't have logging enabled because it was expensive. And then when they wanted to, to and figure out what happened, they didn't have the locks. So that I, I think is clear. But the rest of the stuff is they're really concerned that bad guys are using U.S. cloud services to to run attacks on U.S. cyber infrastructure. And for that, it's really not about cloud security. They really just want to say, you need to better know your customer process, which makes it a little hard to show up with a credit card and have a an instance running in five minutes because now suddenly you're going to have to go through a KYC process. Those are the two things that I see coming. And maybe there'll be a kind of best practices package in which you can't leave any of those services off the most basic set of services you sell to your customers if you're a cloud provider that all sounds you know i i kyc will be really painful and for all of us i suspect the other stuff probably raises the price a little and it's a little unclear what the regulatory authority is because you know yes they can say well we won't make you fed ramp we won't treat you as fed ramp eligible and i right. think that Baidu, which provides cloud services in the United States, will say, well, we weren't thinking you were going to be using our services anyway, so we'll just ignore that. And so the question is, how do they reach T-Mobile and Baidu data services inside the U.S.? And for that, they may need actual legislative authority.
4: Yeah. I mean, obviously for those that contract with the government, the government's going to have more leverage and they can probably get, you know, a good proportion of the the cloud providers just through that. But, you know, there are always going to be components of, of the cloud that obviously aren't necessarily sell- selling to the government. They're going to have much less leverage there. You know, and I do think that it will be interesting to see how they implement sort of the requirements around cloud providers, you know, saying that, you need to confirm the identity of your users and things like that, just because it's, it's always a little bit different when you're talking about identity on the internet.
0: Yeah. All right. Sultan, let's go back to China. They, you know, China is nothing if not good at finding ways to project power or at least to, to say, you did this to us, so we're going to do it to you. And they have been warning the Dutch government about consequences for joining the U.S. decoupling move over chip building software or machines and they've been doing i, I this seems dumb to me but they they're doing it they're they're really clamping down on people who put undersea cables through the south china sea in the absurdly overblown uh, set of uh, seven-dash line claims that they make for the south south china sea but which they you know probably can enforce against most of their neighbors and so people are as far as i can tell starting to say well maybe we need to build our cables way out farther east into the pacific in order to avoid chinese demands for permitting i don't know about you that one struck me as self-defeating because you know if you're china you should want all those undersea cables as close to you as possible so that if you ever want to do something to them it's easy to do including pull them up and put them on one of your new artificial islands and start listening to them
2: it's really interesting let's talk about the the undersea cables because you know we all know there's only a finite number of them and you know they're kind of structurally you know centralized and all that 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 makes it interesting i'm fascinated that they didn't that they didn't want them closer for exactly that reason, as well as surveillance and a bunch of other stuff. It does to me, though signal a shift. And I'd be curious what Jordan thinks about this. Like, like, it does, I think, to a degree single signal a shift from where we're flexing our muscles on South China Sea to it's ours and we're going to tell you what to do. And this is almost like a test to see if they can get away with, with pushing that a little bit. So
0: yeah, I suspect they're regulating, you know, like that old joke because they can and they can make it stick for sure. Right. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, just,
2: that's that's not the issue, right? The, yeah. I think I think it's the fact that they're doing it is the interesting part, right? And similarly to the Dutch issue, like they can absolutely enforce a ban on selling, you know, last generation and mediocre chip manufacturing and design technology to the Dutch. But like, I don't understand why that's even a thing. Like if the Dutch really want to get into chip making, they they come to the US like everybody yeah. else. So I think in both cases, it's almost like knee jerk activity from the PRC that doesn't quite make sense to me. And in yeah. both cases, I think they're hurting themselves medium and long term because These are exactly the kinds of technologies and services that are going to define this next generation of great power competition. Not, can we regulate or can we, you know, annoy an underwater European nation?
0: So I have to say, you know, I find that U.S. allies are just a complete pain in the neck all the time. And the commercial pressures not to do things that are in our national security interest are also a pain in the neck. But it makes you realize that, It's a kind of advantage for the U.S. that we have badly and reluctantly learned how to accommodate all of the very parochial interests of the companies and the other countries that are along for the ride with us on some of this stuff. Because when you see somebody who pays no attention at all to that, who doesn't care if it hurts their companies and doesn't mind just pissing off another country just to show how unhappy they are. They get what they can get where they have the leverage and they leave bad feeling behind to, in ways that will make it much harder for them to do more in contexts where they don't have the leverage.
2: I, I have to say, I, I just get so frustrated because we have an exact blueprint for how to move our national security discussion forward by partnering with partnerships between the academic sector, public sector and private sector because it's what we did from the 1940s all the way through the latter half of the 20th century and it established an incredible power base for the United States that really paid tremendous dividends and led to the internet as we know it and all of the technologies that we've been talking about on this call. And it just frustrates me to the nth degree that we don't think about it as a fundamental strategic power that we have that we can then extend and do more with. Instead of having a bunch of and forgive me for saying it so aggressively, but a bunch of 80 year olds who have no idea how to change the ringtone on their iPhone, thinking about how do I get through the next three years so that I can die quietly. I'm just really tired of us not thinking about the century and instead of thinking about what gets me to the next election or what gets me through whatever this idiotic news cycle is. Because things like AI, things like cyber, things like financial services, these are how we won the last century. And why aren't we just double clicking on that and making sure that we're investing more in it? It just utterly drives me crazy. Sorry, I'll get off the soapbox now. This is just like my daily life right now. And it's really annoying
0: me. All right. So one more regulatory thing that, that I just, I'll ask Siobhan again. The SEC has cyber incident reporting rules. I know that this, you know, every time somebody has to report, they call you up and they ask you to help them. So you've got to have mixed feelings about this. But, you know, the the SEC is, they've gone from catatonic to hyper aggressive in this area. And now they have decided they want to apply a 48 hour rule for Broker dealers and other people who I, I, you know, with my limited experience, think of as more tangential to SEC regulation than most companies. What are you hearing from people about the likely impact of this rule if they? finally
4: adopt it. Well, I mean, yes, you're right. The SEC has really jumped in full force. Again, I think it was probably 2011 or so when they first took their foray into this area. And all of a sudden in the last year or so, this is something that they've really decided is is their area of activity. In terms of the 48-hour rule, I, I do wonder how that's going to be implemented. I mean, in, in any cyber incident, as as you well know, there's a big discussion around, well, when does the clock start? When do you actually know something significant about an incident. When can you even confirm that you've had a cyber incident? And so I think that there are going to be, you know, I mean, probably far more legal discussions about when exactly yep. that the clock starts, so to speak. But 48 hours, I mean, you don't know anything after 48 hours in one of these situations. And so I do worry it's going to be putting companies in a position where they're just kind of saying whatever they happen to know and then almost seeming to reverse themselves, even though it's not like they don't have control of the situation. It's just that they're sort of at the very beginning of fact finding. So, I, you know, I don't know exactly exactly sort of what the intent is behind these really, really restrictive timeframes. But it does, I think, increase a lot of pressure on organizations to provide information that's going to, by definition, be at best half-baked.
0: Well, as long as it's not public, you can provide half-baked data and and say, this is half-baked. But yes, I think we're going to see years of Corporate boardroom dramas, in which at a crucial moment of relating to the breach, the lawyer stands up and looks at his watch and says, "Okay, I'm going to call it." <laughs> yeah, that's the point where they they say, "Okay, we've got an incident. We got 48 hours to report." But I, yeah. I think that a lot of the concern about that from companies comes from the fact that it used to be this was all about. Public disclosure—it's not—and so if you don't have to publicly disclose, forty-eight hours is as good as any. Later, you take it back or you elaborate on it. That would be my guess. Uh, but maybe, maybe yeah. I'm getting. Yeah,
4: the only thing though is there are concerns in terms of what you're saying publicly versus what you're saying to regulators, and especially if you're looking at a ransomware situation, companies often just really have no idea what is going on, and they're often saying, you know, there's a system disruption or something. Mm. And so, if to, if if. If that's enough to report to a regulator, fine. But I do think that companies are going to be in this really tough situation where they feel forced to report something to regulators and then they have this question about, well, is there a delta between what we're saying publicly and what we're saying to regulators? If so, what's the risk in that? And do we need to then say publicly whatever we're saying to regulators because there's further legal risk down the line? And so there's a lot of interdependencies here that I'm not, we'll appreciate them, I guess, as as, as these things ultimately are implemented, assuming they are. But I do think that there are going to be a lot of compl- complexities around something as tight as a 48-hour timeframe.
0: Okay. So this is actually TikTok week in Washington. Scipius has finally said to TikTok, you have to divest, find another resolution. We're not going to improve your plan, as I understand it. So they have a limited time and there's an obvious legal hammer, although one that they beat in a preliminary injunction under Trump when they had a lot more public support, or at least uh, bien pensant support. So they face that. Their CEO has come to Washington and is going to testify. That will not be a pretty experience for him. He's going to get hammered by a lot of people, many of whom were already signed on to one form or another of legislation designed to make life very hard for TikTok in the future. I'm going to ask for commentary on this From I don't have a 13-year-old to come on to explain what the downside of this is, but I thought I would ask people who actually are close to 13-year-olds. Kurt and maybe Siobhan, if you want to tell us what your 13-year-olds think about TikTok and its future, this would be the time to tell us.
1: So I have two teenage TikTokers in my household, and I'm not... So worried about what they're thinking right now, but about the long-term civics lesson they're going to learn from a potential ban they're learning. Well, one of them is learning about the First Amendment as we speak, and she may see a very public lesson very quickly on something that runs counter to our free speech values. So it's not just the immediate issue, but the long-term reflections that Americans have about this and what the next ban might be applied to that... I'm most concerned about and keeping two teenagers happy, of course. Right. Oh, it's obvious who, th- who
0: comes next. It's Elon Musk. Uh, Shaban, your daughter?
4: Well, I have I have a very deprived 12-year-old who <sighs> I think it, really on a daily basis is asking me why she doesn't have a phone, but she does have a healthy dose of skepticism about social media and its safety for children from me. And so actually she keeps assuring me that she's not going to use when she gets this, this mythical phone that she really, really wants and is being deprived of that she's not going to use social media because she understands that there are all these safety risks. So we'll see if that ultimately is, is true. But we, we've, we've so far been able to shield a rather unhappy child from, from the, uh, the likes of TikTok and others.
1: Yeah, Siobhan, I'm going to need your notes. Yeah. <laughs> Siobhan, just hold out
3: six more months and then you'll have a sort of custom chat bot, which will be far exactly. more entertaining than anything her friends could ever, you know, message her. So
4: there we go. There. there we go.
0: <laughs> all right. A complete fake set of friends telling her all kinds of you know uplifting things.
3: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what more could you ask for?
0: Yeah, exactly. I know I could have, I certainly could have used it when I was 13. All right, I just wanted to talk about this story because it is so remarkable. It's the story of 18F. And I will say 18F is a, it's like the US Digital Service, it's a bunch of people who came to the Obama administration from Silicon Valley to rescue the U.S. government from its completely hidebound and incompetent IT infrastructure by revolutionizing the way websites are designed and IT is deployed. They became part of GSA. They actually started charging people for their services. And now it turns out that some of the stuff that they did was, uh, well, it's, it's like the worst of Silicon Valley in every respect kind of a contempt for the rules and a contempt for people who disagree with them politically. So 18F was in charge of designing, as I understand, it, login.gov, which is how you would go online and identify yourself to a particular agency. And NIST had set the standards for that, where people really wanted to know that they were dealing with the person that said they were logging on, that you would actually do a biometric check. They would hold up their ID to the camera. And then they would, at a later stage in this process, they would demonstrate that they their face matched the ID and that their face was alive. And it turns out that 18F just ignored that. They decided, I suspect, they read all the BS about how facial recognition is racist They said, well, that's racist. We Let's not do that. And they just didn't do it, even though they were required to do it in the specs of the people who are asking them for this service. They didn't do it for a year. They didn't do it for a second year. They finally got caught. They admitted that they weren't doing it. And then they immediately had GSA produce a quote unquote equity statement that said, Oh, well, all this face identification stuff, it has demographic impacts on African-Americans. You know, we're not going to deploy that until we can actually demonstrate that it doesn't. I read the study. I remember reading that it was a couple of years ago. They said, we did our own research. They never cite the research. They never published the research. I don't believe they did their own research. They cite the NIST research. The NIST research says the exact opposite. They said this will result in more false negatives affecting African-Americans who are trying to log on. What NIST says is there are actually more false positives in a a very limited number of them, but more false positives for African-Americans and generally people with darker skin, which means that there are actually more people who are going to be approved under the identity check than probably should be. And you might say that's a bad thing, but you can't say that it's a racist thing, that uh, more Black people who are faking their identity will be approved. There's no indication in at least the NIST analysis that Black people will be turned down disproportionately when they try to identify themselves. So uh, as far as I can tell, just blatantly wrong and maybe blatantly a lie. But they use that then to intimidate everybody to say, "Well, I'm sorry, we we you know, we're not going to give you this because, you know, would be racist." And finally, only when they were caught and it was revealed that they'd never done it and they had, if it had something to do with equity, they ne- didn't say so for 2 years. And meanwhile, they've they charged people 10 million dollars for this service. They're saying well, you know, it cost us more to, to provide the service than that. So you didn't really lose anything. So we're not going to give you any money back either. And, you know, a few people have been fired. Even better, just to round this out, Ron Wyden, as far as I can tell, bought the, the, the BS because If you remember the ID.me fight over the IRS using a private commercial service to do identity management, he said, I can't believe you're doing that with that horrible company when you could be using login.gov, which would have none of these problems. Well, it would have none of those problems because it wasn't actually checking your your biometrics. So everybody should be profoundly embarrassed. The only thing that I, I have to say I'm disappointed by is This is not getting covered by anybody except, you know, a couple of right-wing and government contracts sources. So I can only ask, am I crazy or is 18F just out of control?
2: So Seward, I'm going to have to say it's a fascinating thing. I did not, I had not even heard of 18F until I was inside the U.S. government and was handed a bunch of stuff that came from them, which I promptly threw most of away because it's pretty terrible tech and and all that kind of stuff. Tried to find ways to work with them, but since I wasn't a fintech bro from California, it didn't really go, go very well. I see 18F people end up in a bunch of different federal agencies all trying to do innovative tech stuff and I will tell you that for the most part, I don't see any output coming from it. So to me, it's very simple. Like, you want to do something positive and productive that makes the US government you know, safer, sounder, more effective, more secure. Okay, great. I've yet to see anything from the 18F alumni that, that actually does that. There's amazing yeah. innovation happening across the US agencies. There were a bunch of amazing people who've really learned how to do great stuff. I don't see 18F contributing to it too much. So. Yeah, I, I think
0: throwing away the rule book is is the easy part. And it's not the part you're supposed to be proselytizing. You've got to find a way to achieve the same results in a more streamlined fashion. But yeah, this is unfortunately what happens with a lot of, of great ideas from people who come to Washington and think, well, there's a, just a bunch of stupid rules. We'll just get rid of them and then they discover that those stupid rules are there for a purpose even if they are dumb even if they're way over designed you can't just ignore them you have to find a way to achieve the result without all of the delay and friction that they produce so anyway i have to say it's it, it feels like a much deserved comeuppance and maybe more comeuppance is deserved which brings me to the, the last story, comeuppance, Jimmy Dolan, the Madison Square Garden owner is, you know, I can't even say doubling down on stupid because he's way past double. This is the guy who runs the Madison Square Garden and decided he didn't like lawyers who would sue him and they were never going to see another hockey game at the garden. And so he got a bunch of face recognition stuff, ran it against the pictures on all the websites of all the firms that had sued him and kicked those people out. He got sued because, well, he, he got sued because there were lawyers. But it turns out that he has a liquor license and he can't refuse service to people on that basis. So now the liquor authority is on his case, and of course, because he's got, you know, daddy issues that only Donald Trump would appreciate, he's decided to, to attack the liquor authorities. By investigating them as they investigate him, he hired investigators to go after the investigator who's going after him. Kurt, I assume you're a Knicks fan, or because this, this is why you're following this, but is there anything to justify what Dolan is doing here, or is he just going to get hammered?
1: So I, I was raised a Knicks fan, but abandoned them in the mid-90s, around the time that James took over the team. And uh, having said that, I will plan to never go to the Madison Square Garden or Radio City Music Hall or any of other, other venues again. I assume my Yeah, he, he'll, he'll that solve system. that problem.
0: Yeah, you don't have to make the resolution. He'll just tell you. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'll
3: see you yeah. next. Come on, on the road, Stuart, cut this guy a break. They're they're forty two and thirty one, almost a six hundred. You know, a sixty percent win rate. We're fifth in the East. It's a new day for New York basketball. All right, all uh, right. Well, I'm, then, I'm sure you you know. we can get Julius Randle on the side of a on the side, you know, to endorse a law firm or something, and maybe he'll be able to sort it out for all
0: of us. Even a blind pig finds an acorn now and then, and you know, the New York blind pigs, as far as I'm concerned, that'd be a great name for a for a pro team.
1: So I think the headline for the whole affair is billionaires may use technology to smite their enemies, just as many of them have used money to do the same throughout history. So it's another avenue of approach for them. But I do commend Jimmy Dolan for a little bit of restraint because he has not used the technology, the facial recognition to locate five basketball players who can win an NBA playoff game. So... (laughs) He hasn't yet. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see this. Yeah, once we get out of the
3: first round, then we'll maybe have another conversation. <laughs>
1: Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're
0: we're we're coming to the to the, the to the end, but I have an errata session or a response from a listener, Simpson Garfinkel sent me a note. He said, you know, in episode four forty-eight, you asked, How did that priest data Priests who were on grinder and other services. How did that get de-anonymized? And he said, "Well, as the New York Times and others have documented, it's possible to get high-res location data for app users. If you go to the, you know, you get app user data from advertisements. You can follow them around during the day, and then you find where they spend their time at night. And if they spend their time at night in a rectory or an apartment where." only priests live, then you are very sure you've found a priest who is also using grinder. And that's his his speculation is how you would do that. And that makes perfect sense. So I, I accept Simpson's tutelage on that. I think it's obvious when you think that you would have to do that, that it takes a lot of processing and some specialized knowledge about which locations you're looking for. And that may explain why this effort took otherwise an inexplicable millions of dollars. So that's the explanation for our listeners. And I probably should have figured that out in the moment. All right, that's it. Thanks to Shaban, Thanks to Kurt. Thanks to Jordan and to Sultan for joining us. For our listeners, send your comments, questions, feedback, to Podcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a review and we'll read it on the air if it's at least entertaining, including entertainingly abusive. This has been episode 449 of the Cyber Law Podcast.
2: There, Stuart, I've said something nice about lawyers.